Take that! This is Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is a rebroadcast of an original episode first recorded with my father, Jeff Clark. Schadenfreude. The guilty pleasures of Humbug. So you're going to put your introductory comments on later? No, I'm starting from the beginning, but I don't read the book to say argument by artifice. I'm not retarded. <laughs> it's got a... No, it's <laughs> three friggin' words. <laughs> uh, that was just a little sample of our process of getting ready to do a program. I think I will leave it in, actually, yeah. Welcome to Hunting Humbug. When I... Oh, and last time we did this... Yeah, you, you stuffed up. Many times. No, you stuffed up I as was well. perfect. Yeah, you were. You really no, threw me off. I don't think we need to yell, is what I was going to say. What? We yelled a bit too much last time. I think we were too angry. Well, when you smashed me across the mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Well, get it right, you idiot. I was, I was yelling with a thick lip. This time it's guns for Welcome everybody to Hunting Humbug 101, uh, and obviously I'm here with my father Jeff. Dad, how are you? Good, thanks, Theo. And uh, we're going to look at two different um, fallacies, although they're not really fallacies, more like um, dodgy techniques, uh, you know, humbug. In this podcast, we're going to look at argument by artifice and bad faith. Um, now, argument by artifice is in the actual book, uh, Humbug, the Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Thinking, because I know someone on iTunes didn't know where the book was. You can get the ebook from our website, www.skepticsfieldguide.net. If you just Google my name, Theo Clark, I am the top Theo Clark on Google. There's no one better than me. Uh, you'll find it. Now, so the first bit, argument by artifice, is from the book, but the second bit, bad faith, was something we came up with, or Jeff came up with, uh, at a later date, which is just on the website, but we will have a look at both those in this podcast. So without uh, mucking around anymore, I will send it over to Dad. It starts. Thanks, Theo. Uh, just a comment, too. Bad faith um, is discussed in an article I wrote for The Skeptic. And uh, we might add that at the end of the podcast. Yeah, we'll, ch- we'll chuck a link up to it. And, or we, we'll put a link, yeah. We'll say I'll put a link. Yeah. He's techno-savvy. Okay, so argument by artifice, other terms and or related concepts we use, rationalisation, asserting an unwarranted conclusion, or argument by deception. The overall description, the conclusion is all and drives the argument. In order to make a case, the advocate puts forward contrived, convoluted and unfounded assertions which any fair-minded and objective observer would perceive as artificially constructed. 
The reasoning may be specious, tendentious, flawed in logic, and unjust in effect. Example. Noel Maggot is the Director of Finance for the Faculty of Health at the University of Woolamulu. Noel is a bitter man, in part because no one takes the trouble to pronounce his unfortunate surname correctly. He insists it's French in origin and should be pronounced Marget. Mr. Maggot is writing a letter to Ivana Bugarov, formerly a lecturer in Occupational Health and Safety in the School of Nursing at Woolamulu. The letter begins... This is to inform you that the Faculty of Health will be asserting that it has a right to the royalties on revenue generated by your leg-pulling device. Our legal office has determined that although you patented this so-called bugger of leg-puller two years after you resigned from the university, you must have conceived the design of the device while an employee of the university. Further, it has been established that one of your lectures dealt in part with the therapeutic application of transaction of, sorry, of traction to sports injuries to the tibia and patella. Given this history, the University Legal Office has determined that you are not entitled to take out a patent on this device. Comment. Devious and mendacious advocates, such as Maggot, attempt to use any number of self-serving obfuscations to achieve their ends. In this case, an unearned financial benefit for the University... This is consistent with his role. As Director of Finance, he is tasked with earning an additional $1 million for the Faculty of Health each year. If he fails, he will be sacked. So he is always driven by the bottom line, and his arguments are always self-serving. More often than not, they are also shonky and disingenuous. At times they are risible. He was appointed to the position as Director of Finance not because he had a background in research and scholarship, but because he had made lots of money in all his previous positions, telemarketing of skincare products, car sales, timeshare real estate, and pyramid marketing of magnetic underlays. In the present case, and if his bullying is successful, he will ensure that the intellectual property produced by the creative mind and hard work of an individual is appropriated by an entity, the university, which made no contribution to the work. The question of whether or not the university has valid legal grounds for its claims could only be tested by you know, only be tested in a court of law. Given that the legal resources of the university are apparently behind uh, Maggot's claim, Ivana is unlikely to have her day in court. She will be wary of undertaking a legal defence of her position given the high cost of civil litigation and the uncertainty of the outcome. Whatever the legal position, it is clear that an artifice has been used to bully Ivana into submission. Argument by artifice may be difficult to detect. It is a commonplace fallacy used by large organisations to further their interests. In higher education, it's often embedded in public documents put out by tertiary institutions, particularly those documents which employ overblown rhetoric as the authors seek to position institutional policy according to the imperatives of the day. A good example is assessment policy. Most institutions of higher learning take great pains to convince students and the general public that the assessment of students enrolled in degree programs is fair, equitable and objective. In practice, such claims may be difficult to meet. The fiction of objectively defined student learning outcomes 
is often maintained through rhetorical claims rather than reasoned argument. Policies emphasise a focus on clearly specified criteria of achievement. These criteria are represented as objective and verifiable, and the notion of comparing students to each other is rejected as a basis for assessment. In practice, any assessment of whether a student has achieved a criterion is usually left to the subjective opinion of the marker, a subjective opinion formed through the development of normative expectations. Schadenfreude. The guilty pleasures of humbug. Uh, so now just before we go on, um, I've used, you know, Ivana Bugaroff is mm. me, obviously, and, and Wollamaloo is Griffith University, because mm. this is based on my own experience. Mm. But the, the fellow that um, I was in conflict with, the finance fellow, was, um, we called him Pusshead. Mm. But um, do you think the names we've used are far enough away from the university for not to be construed as Griffith University? I think so. The, the one, the one, the major metropolitan university in Brisbane. Well, there's three. In Australia, there's three. So yeah, there's I, University of Queensland. I think that's sufficiently disguised. Yeah. Look, if you've got any doubts, just bleep out those names, will you? Yeah. Okay. Griffith right. University. Yeah. Jeff Clark. Yeah. Pusshead. Pusshead. All right. Just, just bleep those names. I out. can't remember his real name actually, so I can even remember Pusshead. Now, the other one we're going to look at is bad faith. So these are just uh, from the website, so I'll just uh, read out some of these ones. Um, so bad faith, the advocate knowingly takes an unprincipled position or carries out an unprincipled action while disingenuously claiming to be motivated by you know, principle. Bad faith is similar in nature to many of other types of humbug, but the key difference is that the advocate is knowingly acting in an unprincipled fashion out of pure self-interest. Before accusing an advocate of bad faith, it is important to ensure one is not merely imputing their motives, as much fun as that is. And just uh, a quick look at um, a bit of a, a further example. This is a, from a post that uh, Dad, you did on the website. Um, bad faith involves the adoption of a principled posture in which, the, which is unprincipled. Other more simple descriptors may be used to label such a posture, such as lying hypocrite comes to mind. But bad faith is a term which is worthwhile advancing for its precision of meaning and emotional coolness. Calling someone a lying hypocrite can be provocative, whereas claiming that he or she is acting in bad faith may be or ought to be more tolerable. Here are some examples of bad faith, both to clarify the concept and to illustrate its utility in identifying and challenging humbug. The first example is almost literal and comes from my dim recollection, this is Dad, by the way, I recall it perfectly, episode of Yes, Prime Minister. Jim Hacker, who's a Prime Minister, is conferring with Sir Humphrey Appleby about possible appointees to the newly vacant post of Archbishop of Canterbury. The bottom line is that Sir Humphrey makes a compelling case for appointing someone who doesn't believe in God. Their appointment process is itself in bad faith but an agnostic or atheist archbishop preaching with apparent sincerity from a pulpit about the resurrection and the life everlasting would also be acting in bad faith. Well, duh. Some less ecclesiastical examples may serve to illustrate the broad utility of the concept. A hypocritical journalist acts in bad faith when he or she claims to be reporting news, while in reality he or she creates news by provoking newsworthy incidents. A hypocritical social researcher acts in bad faith when he or she claims to be researching a topic in order to discover underlying reality, while in reality he or she discards and doesn't report results which don't support his or her cherished hypothesis. 
a hypocritical peace activist acts in bad faith when he or she expresses public anguish at the death of non-combatants while privately delighting in such casualties as civilian deaths add weight to his or her rhetorical position on armed conflict. Gee, looking at that after all this time, I, I really write very well, don't I? Yeah, I thought you were pretty good. Yeah. That, that, was, that was so succinct and captured it exactly. Listen, um, you can also edit out those um, self-praise comments. No, right? no. You're not going to leave them in. I'm going to loop them in a few times. <laughs> it was ironic, people. Yeah. Ironic. Okay. Um, Go away, sock bucket. Yeah. Go away. Now, what I want to do um, is to... Uh, first of all, we're going to look at a couple of different examples. Um, one specifically of the argument by artifice, then one of bad faith. Um, and then a couple that are combine the two. Now, the first example... Uh, well, I mean, just before we get on to looking at the first example of, um, of, of uh, argument by artifice, with argument by artifice, I'd say that generally it's a, a very legalistic style uh, of you know, humbug in that there might be some technicality or some technical rule that someone is actually being faithful to, uh, but any reasonable person would realise that that's actually, you know, pretty um, unjust or would they'd find it absurd or whatnot. So even though technically you might be following a rule or a law, any reasonable person would find that to be absurd. And so obviously the artifice has been constructed um, in order just to purely to win a case. Um, yeah, yeah. If, I, if, if I can give an example that everybody would understand, if there's a really repugnant person who's been accused, say, of a, of a murder and is to appear in a court um, for uh, trial, that person is entitled to, and I think we all understand this, this, this person is entitled to, in the abstract, a, an effective defence. Now, if, if a lawyer, a defence lawyer, is appointed by the court to act on behalf of this person, the defence lawyer might actually believe that this person is repugnant and not worth defending. But when the defence lawyer takes the role of defence lawyer, he is obliged to construct the best possible argument he can to defend the defender. And in that case, the, the argument might be artificially constructed. He might deliberately leave out um, ideas and issues that uh, make his client look bad, del deliberately embellish um, incidents and perspectives that make his client look good. And he's doing this in order to present the best possible case that his client is innocent. And in our court systems, uh, that's that's the standard we have to adopt. And so there is a place for argument by artifice in, in a court of law where the conclusion you're going to reach is preordained. So a defence lawyer is going knows at the beginning, before he constructs an argument, that he's going to say to the jury my client is innocent. That's the conclusion he's going to reach. So he constructs an argument that best arrives at that, that conclusion. Uh, but it's when it's used outside of that context, when it's used as a means of deception, of self-aggrandisement, when it's used for unjust purposes, yeah. that's when the argument by Yeah, but, I, but to follow on from that, I think that that is one of possibly the issues with the way we our legal system works, is that I'm not saying I can come up with a better solution, but, you know, there are some cases where 
where where they're evenly matched. But so you get like the example in the book we had where there's a legal chill, and so even if you know maybe the law's on your side, can you afford to take the risk? With that, so they'll come up with some artificial thing to try and accuse you of doing something. So there's a lot of contemporary examples I'm sure most people can think of, uh, including you know the um, McLiable trial, which is pretty famous in the UK in the 90s. Just recently, we've had Ben Goldacre being uh, told to get rid of some audio off his site, and probably mate, the big one at the moment will be um, uh, Simon Singh and his book uh, Trick or Treatment, and where he said the um, the British Chiropractors Association were uh, bogus, or they made bogus claims, rather. And the judge basically said, well, bogus means you're accusing them of knowingly being deceptive, whereas Simon Singh meant bogus as, well, they're making a claim that's untrue. He's not saying anything about whether they actually know that it's untrue or not. Uh, I recommend watching Boston Legal if you want to see some examples of argument yeah. by artifice. In a, in a fictional setting, it's so really good in terms of the way it presents those kind of legal loopholes and uh, shonky arguments. Yep, yep. I might even try and hunt down a clip to insert right now. Okay, if, that, if I did, then I just put one in. If I didn't, then we're just continuing on. Um, but anyway, oh, well, let's put in a definite clip, whether I even just played a Boston legal clip or not. Depends how lazy I am. I am quite lazy. Uh, this is a definite example of bad faith. It's a legal one, but everyone knows that this is completely dodgy and I, I'm loath to put this in here because it is Jim Carrey and he's a wanker because of his stances on, uh, on autism and vaccines but anyway, nevertheless his work stands out separately from what he is as a person especially his work before he became an idiot this movie is Liar Liar uh, if you haven't seen it, he basically is a lawyer and he, you know, a magic spell put on him where he can't lie um, he's representing a client uh, in her divorce and she has signed a prenuptial agreement that says if she ever cheats on her husband, she is entitled to nothing. Um, there's, it's clear she's cheated on her husband by the evidence given in court, including the lover admitting it. But nevertheless, Jim Carrey finds a legal loophole and the artifice has been constructed. And I'll let you have a listen and be the judge of it for yourselves. <laughs> Under the terms of the prenuptial agreement, if Mrs. Cole commits adultery, she is entitled to nothing. With your permission, we'd like to play the following tape recording. Oh, come on! Your Honor, how can it be proved that the male voice on that tape is not Mr. Cole himself? You're such a better lover than my husband. Oh, my God. Your Honor, I object! And why is that, Mr. Reed? Because it's devastating to my case! Overruled. Good call! I have no further witnesses, Your Honor. What are you doing? You do not understand. I can't lie. I can't do anything to stop you. To pay fifteen a night. Listen, you bastard! I want my money. I am not going to end up as thirty-one-year-old divorcee on welfare because my scumbag attorney had a sudden attack of conscience. Forty-one. Mr. Reed has no further witnesses, then I have no choice but to rule in favor of... Your I call Samantha Cole to the stand. Order. Order. Order! Sit down. Mr. Reed, it is out of sheer morbid curiosity I'm allowing this freak show to continue.
Mrs. Cole, is this a copy of your driver's license? Yes. It says here you're a blonde, are you? If you don't remember, perhaps Mr. Falk will. Brunette. We can play the tape again. Maybe it's on there. I'm a brunette. Thank you. Now, let's see. Weight 105? Yeah. In your bra. Your Honor, I object. You would. Bastard. Hey, quiet. Overruled. Wait. 118. All right, fine, fine. I'm 127. Uh-huh. And it says here you were born in 1964, but that's not true either, is it? Is it? No. Can you tell me what it says here on your birth certificate under date of birth? Your Honor, I object. What does this have to do with anything? Overruled. Mrs. Cole, answer the question. 1965. Now, let me get this straight. That would mean that you lied about your age to make yourself older. But why would any woman... Wanna do that? I changed it so I could get married. And the truth shall set you free. My client lied about her age. She was only 17 when she got married, which makes her a minor. And in the great state of California, no minor can enter into any legal contract without parental consent, including... Prenuptial agreements. Prenuptial agreements! This contract is void. The fact that my client has been ridden more than Seattle slew is irrelevant. Standard community property applies and she is entitled to half of the marital assets or $11.395 million. Jordan face that. Swoosh. And that's the game. Nothing further, Your Honor. Okay, so that was Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, and yeah, a very obvious example of a kind of legalistic argument by artifice. Now, technically, he was right, you know, that's the law, so the judge had to rule in favour of the law, but that's just a good example of where the law doesn't necessarily serve justice. Um, it's you know, obvious to any reasonable person that that woman unknowingly um, went into that agreement and broke it. So, i.e., she acted in bad faith as well, so it is kind of an example of both. Now, let's have a look at an example of bad faith. Um, this just came up, I just found this one today, so, uh, basically, you know, anyone who's been following on the issues with, um, vaccinations and whatnot is pretty up to speed with what's going on around the world, um, to any of our foreign listeners, in Australia, um, we have, uh, there's been a, an outbreak of whooping cough, or, um, and in New South Wales, mainly, which is another state, but, you know, including, like, basically a tenfold increase in cases this year from last year. And there was a good article today in one of the papers, basically, of a, a, um, a, an opinion maker, you know, really bagging out the anti-vaxxers being nutjobs. It turns out that our anti-vaccine lobby, as I call them, they don't call themselves that. They call themselves the Australian Vaccination Network. And their little subtitle is Empowering People to Make Informed Choices. Sure it is. One of their t-shirts says, Love them, protect them, never inject them. So that's just such an obvious example of bad faith. They're knowingly trying to put up a deceptive name and subtitle for their organisation, but they're completely about anti-immunisation, um, anti-vaccination. Now, it works really successfully for them because, for example... And hat tip to Twitter, I can't remember who it was on Twitter who put the link up here, but, um, you know, I saw they put up a link that Huggies in New Zealand, so Huggies make nappies, if you don't know that, and I know that because I've got the small children. Well, yeah, diapers for yeah, our American diapers, yeah. And 
on their website, they've got useful links for parents, and they've got links to really legitimate sites like um, the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance, to Beyond Blue, which is a depression site, to an asthma site, Australia, and all these legitimate things. But they've also got a link to the Australian Vaccination Network. And if you've never heard of it, that just sounds like an information network about vaccinations or whatnot. But they're basically the anti-vaccine lobby in Australia, and I. Something tells me they wouldn't get as much link love from people if they called themselves the anti-vaccination lobby, which is truly what they are, and if they were being honest, that's what they would be. They keep saying we're about informed choice, but if you go to their website, everything is about don't vaccinate, vaccines cause autism, all the typical stuff that has been shown to be an outright lie. Um, and you know it's that kind of acting in bad faith that is really quite despicable. Yeah, agreed. I, I think um, despicable, but also extremely dangerous, because the kind of thing they're doing, or the, the bad faith they're employing, can actually result in the death or, or severe disability of children, innocent children, uh, who are brought up by parents who are gullible uh, and take this sort of information on board and decide not, not to vaccinate. Not only that, but innocent uh, children, if, if the herd immunity is reduced by the activities of these people, it means that infants that are too young to be vaccinated are likely to be exposed to the um, the, the, uh, the, the the germs in the community that are normally reduced by a high level of vaccination. Yeah, or so, yeah. Among older older kids, so um, even parents who believe in vaccination can find suddenly their child uh, gets a severe yeah. case of measles or whooping cough. Uh, before they're able to vaccinate them and provide immunity for them, individual immunity. Yeah. So it's it's a, I, I, I think it's an unfortunate term, herd immunity. I think population immunity would be better, mm. but um, it, that's the issue too. The sleeper issue with all this is the population immunity, which is yeah. so, so important for... Uh, infants and well, and that's one of the major misconceptions about vaccinations is people go, oh, I've got the vaccine, therefore I can't get it. It's like, no, no, you're, they're about 90-something 90 some, 90 percent effective most vaccines, more than 90 percent, but, you know, some of them as low as 90, which means that, you know, even though you've been vaccinated, there's still a chance that you could be one of the ones who would still get it. So the backup is that if everyone around you also is vaccinated, then that population immunity means that that disease doesn't spread through a community. Um, which is what's been happening in New South Wales dramatically. I mean, there's a, they show you on the the, the um, a newspaper that the Daily Telegraph thing it was. They showed the map of New South Wales and they showed you know 50 cases last year in this area. Now there's 800 this year, so it's a massive increase in the epidemic proportions. Really dangerous. Um, okay, so anyway. If again, this is one of those ones that hopefully I'm about to put a link into this, but on the um, Channel 7 show a couple of weeks ago, when they on Sunday night it's called, and they played a story about the um, vaccinations and whooping cough and whatever, and they had they managed to track down a anti-vaccine doctor, and she said that I'm not anti-vaccine, I'm pro-choice. Another good example of bad faith, because as they asked her, when, have, how many vaccinations have you given in the last 20 years or whatever? None. So, pretty obvious you're not pro-choice if you've given none. So, yet another good example of some bad faith. So, hopefully I'm about to play that clip now. (laughs) 
We're also joined by Professor Peter McIntyre from the National Immunisation and Surveillance Centre and anti-vaccine GP Dr Giselle Cook. Dr Cook, you object to me calling you an anti-vaccine GP. Absolutely. That's in no way an accurate representation of what my advice is to my patients. Despite not having given a vaccination for my 18 years. that I'm pro-choice. But you haven't um, given a vaccination for 18 that's years. That's my personal choice in my practice because I do not provide risky medical interventions to my patients and I consider vaccination as one of those. Okay, so let's move on. We've got a couple of quick more examples. One I just want to look at really quickly and then one we might spend a bit more time mocking. Um, the quick example, this one's off the website, and just really quickly, I won't go into great big details, I'll put a link up to it, but another really good example of, um, of both bad faith and um, argument by artifice. Um, this guy was employed as a labourer by a company, and um, anyway, he, he basically lost his job, and and the um, he wanted the, to take them to the Industrial Relations Commission, and the lawyers for the company said that uh, he wasn't a labourer, he was a director of the company. So they they wanted to throw the claim out and say this guy was actually a director of the company, not an employee. But let's listen to how his job actually worked. The commission found that the guy's name's Mr Forsyth. So they found that Mr Forsyth was an employee because he was supervised by a leading hand or foreman, was subject to the direction of his supervisor, and was paid a flat hourly rate from which the company deducted tax instalments. Hmm, I've never heard of a director of a company being under those conditions. But there were apparently up to seven other workers are all employed as company directors. So they basically said, oh, we don't want any union stuff. We don't want to pay you any of your award conditions. So we'll call you a director of, your, of the company. <laughs> I, I've never, I don't think I've ever come such a, across such a clear, real-life example of bad faith and an argument by artifice. Oh, Sarah, can I just give perhaps another example, and it, it's given me pause to think this example you've got, because um, HRM, Human Relations, uh, at Griffith University, wrote to me just recently saying that they had a proposition for me. They'd uh, changed my title from lecturer to Lord High Emperor of Griffith University, but the position would be honorary, and... Um, uh, that my conditions would change accordingly. Now, naturally, I leapt at the opportunity, opportunity of promotion. But I'm just wondering whether I've made a terrible mistake because I think honorary means you don't get paid. Oh, that is a bit weird. I'm having deja vu right now, too. <laughs> Are you getting deja vu? No, no, it's not deja vu. I said that before when our, our, our podcast failed. Yeah. This is our. This is a take two, by the way, listeners. We did it last night in the bloody stupid sky. There, don't get me started. However, see, I've got to say, I think we're faking spontaneity. Yeah, really this is well. Really good, I know. Until like, you gave us away just then. Yeah, but like, uh, listeners, you would not have realised that all that conversation pretty much verbatim we've already had before, and I think we're doing a remarkable job. We should be actors. Okay. Um, oh no, hang on. <laughs> I don't want to be an actor. They're too brainless. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of honorary titles, then. Oh. Now they know that this is just me pretending to do it again. I'll, I'll try and do it differently than last time. All right, all right. Maybe I can do it in a higher pitch. No, no, I won't. Okay. Um, this hands down... Now, this one is not a legalistic example, but it's hands down one of my favourite I've come across, rationalisations using an artifice. So sometimes an argument by artifice is just a rationalisation for why you're doing something. So that was the case in the other example too. But 
Anyway, listeners, you may have heard this person. Her name is Dana Boyd. She is a um, researcher into social networks, um, you know, like MySpace and um, Facebook and Twitter, I assume, now and all those ones. Anyway, Dana spells her name all lowercase. So she actually had her name changed to be lowercase, D-A-N-A-H, lowercase, Boyd, B-O-Y-D, that's lowercase as well. So yeah, on her site where she explains it all, and again, I'll put a link up to it, she gives some reasons like, you know, lowercase Dana is balanced because like the D looks like the mirror image of a H. Wow, man, it's so balanced. Um, anyway, that, that was, you know, whatever, you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> the best rationalization is the following. She says, so again, I, I won't read it out verbatim, but she says basically she was really bothered by the fact that the and not not just really, I was always bothered by the fact the first person singular pronoun is capitalised English. And I always thought it was quite self-righteous. <laughs> I've often thought that too myself. That yeah. used to give me the shits when I was yeah. about two years old. Or yeah, I, I remember first came across and I was like, WTF? I remember in like grade five when I wrote uh, lowercase i, my teacher got up me. Yeah. I was like... Bitch, I'm twisting that Oh, sorry, I've just been watching Carmen on South Park. <laughs> um... <laughs> anyway, this is going to take me so long to edit this stupid podcast. <laughs> anyway, anyway, she says, ever since I was a kid, and note all this is written with lowercase I, lowercase eyes too, so she's using lowercase i. Ever since I was a kid, I was told the world does not revolve around me, yet our written culture is telling you something entirely different. So, uh, I'm sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah. Can I suggest that we read it? As it's written. Okay, all right. So the lowercase i, yeah. I'm going to... I'll give you an example. Okay. I'm going to... Uh, it's not i, it's e. <laughs> so... All right, you, you take it away. <laughs> ever since e was a kid, e was told that the world does not revolve around me, yet our written culture is telling me something entirely different. E started researching where the capitalisation of said pronoun came from and was quite stunned to find that it, oh, sorry, was always capitalised because it always appeared but as the first word in a sentence. Okay, that's now, good. I have to get edit that. Like, that's going to be a much higher amplitude than everything else. And now I have to edit that down, you, you idiot. <laughs> okay, I will take over now. Sorry, listeners, if that, if you're on the bus or whatever and that has just partially deafened you. <laughs> okay. And then when it started appearing in the middle, it started getting capital. And look, the problem is because the way you said that, I wasn't paying any attention to anything you actually said. I was just laughing at you, are an idiot. Okay, anyway, she researched that supposedly it was only, you only said I at the start of a sentence, that's why it was capitalised. But then when it was in the middle, it started getting capitalised out of convention because people were worried about getting lost in the script. So what's the problem then? So it wasn't done, so it just completely makes everything she just said redundant, because it wasn't done to make us the centre of the universe, it was done purely to convene convention and so it wouldn't disappear in the sentence. You are an idiot. And and her, as you pointed out in our previous attempt at this podcast, oh sorry, I've let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> um, uh, what it does actually, it, she is actually putting herself out there yeah. as some kind of principled kind of person and is actually attracting attention yeah. by using the lowercase i. So it's totally disingenuous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's what she said. I mean, listen to this bit. She goes, this led me on a mental tangent. Well, I think they certainly led you on a mental tangent, but not to, not a good one. What's in a name? What's it worth? Why is it so valuable that it should be capitalised? 
Like, and then she starts talking about it. Anyway, she basically goes on, um, I am not my name. My name is simply another descriptor of me. Should I weight that descriptor as anything more valuable than the other adjectives you used to describe me? Obviously, I care about my name. I've gone out of my way to change it too many times to suggest otherwise. But do I believe that capitalization shows the appropriate valuable value? As I said, Dana Boyd, you are a I think uh, the other thing is, now that I read her name, uh, after she spruiked all this kind of stuff, Dana, I don't say it as Dana, I say it as da nah. <laughs> yeah. Dana Boyd. It's not Dana, because it's not a hard D, it's Dana Boyd. Dana Boyd. Nah. Dana Boyd. But uh, yeah, and the thing is, as we said, like, it's completely lame, as we said, you know, lame, look at me, everybody. So it's complete opposite. But if she was genuinely saying, oh, this is really arrogant and, so, you know, self-righteous to draw, the, be the centre of attention by using capital I, uh, hello, changing your name to all lowercase, thus forcing everybody to make note of that and have a conversation about it every time you write your name you, you know complete but anyway we're, we're both getting a name changed so I'm going to get my name changed to all caps Theo Clark and uh, you're going to put an exclamation mark yeah exclamation point on the end of mine yeah. and I was going to put a question mark on the end of mine so, so people would say Jeff Clark Jeff Clark <laughs> uh, and really it has endless possibilities yeah. We both thought that we would have air quotes. Yeah, air quotes. So you actually have at, to, at the beginning yeah. and end of our first name. So um, people would, when they when they saw me, they'd say Jeff Clark, and but at the same time they'd do air quotes, air quotes, yeah, with their two fingers from each hand. And I, fe I felt I deserved that level of recognition. Mm. If Dana's going to get recognition for her stupidities, yeah. I think I should get just that much greater recognition that people come up to me and they give me air quotes. I actually like that idea because we can take it one step further and actually just get our name changed to air quotes. Because you got, say, Prince became just a symbol, right? Yeah. Now, she's got yeah. lowercase. Now, a symbol is still a drawing, but if your name yeah. is just air quotes, they can't even write your name. They can only mime it. What if you actually had the letters A-I-R-Q-U-O-T-S? So, you have, your name is actually air quotes with an exclamation mark at the beginning and the end. So... When you come up to people and they ask you your name, they say, what's your name? And you, you say, air quotes. Oh. And they think you're insane. <laughs> but you're actually telling them your name. No, no, no. <laughs> Even better, no. You have, they have to actually, they're not allowed to say your name out loud, but do air quotes and mouth it. So they actually have to mouth your name. So I'm going to do that now. This is ready. To listeners who couldn't see <laughs> yeah. that, that was hysterically funny. Yeah. I just repressed my laugh yeah, because yeah. we've done it several times That's before. Right, yeah. But so but you can verify that I actually said my name out loud. Oh, sorry, it's quite, I mouthed it and you, you mouthed your name air quotes. So that's how I want to be referred to from now on. Okay. On a, ready? Let's practice. Yeah, okay. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> Man. So yeah, there are people <laughs> at the other end of this parking lot who are looking at us strangely. Oh, well, yeah. That's, that's going to be quite difficult now because. If they come over and say, what are you doing? What's your name? Like, it's police. <laughs> I can see me getting arrested pretty quick. <laughs> Shit. Well, I had thought of having my name changed by Deedpol to Dumb Copper. Yeah. But I thought that would be really bad. <laughs> yeah, no, piss off, pig. <laughs> can you get out of the car, sir? What's your name? Piss off, pig. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, That's no, probably not a good no, idea. No. 
And to all the police listening, we love you. Uh, we really like the police. Actually, we I, well, I'm getting followed job. by on Twitter. I'm getting followed by the New South Wales Police. Really, which is a bit of a worry. <laughs> but I did notice a lot of the other people in the Australian skeptics are uh, getting followed by them too. So either a they they're suspicious of our organisation, or b a member of the Australian skeptic is well, also a member it, of the New South easy, Wales Police. It's easy to come above the herd with the police and that. I mean, I. I go on a holiday to Thailand um, four or five times a year, uh, just for a couple of days, just because I like Thailand. But it's amazing the trouble it causes me in terms of being shadowed and, and people looking inside my car and getting shirts warrants from my house. Raiding your computer for photos. <laughs> Thailand of your own. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that was our... I actually enjoyed this second version much more than the first. Yeah, it, we were much it, funnier. It was not as polished, but we sort of knew where we were going. Yeah, uh, we, we riffed a bit. We, we did, and we sparked off each other. Yeah. And the other thing, people, this is the actual truth. Um, we tried to put together podcasts using Skype and all that kind of stuff. Google Chat. And Google Chat. Yeah. And I find when we do it together in the same space, our, our non-verbal cues actually mean that we don't over-talk each other as yeah. much. So I think, uh, irrespective of tech, technical quality, which is better in this instance, I think... Um, well, just don't can. I haven't done it yet. Might just just the, the, the fact that we're in the same space means that um, if I want to say something, I can sort of indicate to Theo that I want to say something. In, our, in, our, in this previous version of the podcast that won't go to air, um, there was a lot of over-talking, which I think is inevitable yeah. when you can't see each other. The, the only main drawback I have with this is the fact we have to wear clothes now. <laughs> yeah. You know. yeah, yeah. Like, I, mean, well, I mean, I suppose we don't have to, but we are in a car park. Yeah. Because um, our sound studio is the car. Yeah, yeah. And if we weren't clothed, That's and right. an older male with a younger male, <laughs> sure related, but they wouldn't know that. Yeah, so. well, if they knew that, they'd be even more yeah, concerned, that's perhaps. Right, yeah. <laughs> You can edit that out, can't you? Yeah. 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 No, I can't be bothered. Um, okay. And the other the other thing is, on a serious note now, I've gotten quite a few emails the last couple of weeks, so sorry for not having replied to quite a few of you, but um, I'm just a um, No, I'm just too lazy. No, hang on. No, I'm busy. That's it. Um, I was Very prepared that. And, um, and also, uh, thank you for all the positive emails. We've got a lot of positive emails, and they genuinely, you know, they make our day when we get them. And we were remarking the other day that, Podcasting must be different to just doing a blog or whatnot. I think the personal connection you make with people is much more intense because well, you guys are listening. The other, the other thing I'd like to say, there, which really strikes me about the, the feedback we're getting is that um, the listeners that do bother to give us feedback really, really get it. Um, and sometimes when you're just typing on a, on a blog and so on, I think some of the non-verbals, uh, yeah. just the tone of voice and that kind of <coughs> stuff. So... Uh, the listeners are really getting where we're moving into irony and, and we're just playing about with words and concepts and ideas and other other stretches where we're serious and giving serious content. And uh, I, I'm just impressed at the rapport we seem to have with listeners. Um, and uh, that keeps me going. Yeah. It's, it's it really very, very positive feedback. Okay, all right. Well, until a couple of weeks from now, you've been listening to Hunting Humbug 101. Adios. Now, I just bloody hope I was actually recording this, because otherwise we have to do a third one. So that was a rebroadcast episode of Hunting Humbug 101. For more information about the show and the book, 
Humbug the Skeptics Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies and Deceptive Arguments, head to www.skepticsfieldguide.net. <laughs>